Uh, each day this last week, as I was heading out the door in the morning on the way to work, I grabbed myself a little tin of tuna to have with my lunch. Uh, but I've got a confession to make to you tonight. Uh, as I've been grappling with this passage this week, I've actually been feeling quite convicted about this. Uh, not because I think that eating tuna is wrong, all foods are clean, right? Uh, but because I know that there's another member of the staff team uh, I won't tell you his name, but maybe we can just call him the vicar, right? Is <laughs> particularly affronted by the smell of tuna. Really doesn't like it. I'm feeling acutely aware of verse 15 in our passage. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Uh, but he's not here tonight. My confession's safe with you guys, right? Yeah, thank you. Uh, but it seems I owe John an apology, and I guess I better keep my tuna-eating uh, days to days when he's not in the office. But before he gets on his high horse, uh, I'll just remind him of verse 3 too. The one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. Yeah. Uh, and also, I guess if you don't see me at church next week, um, you'll know that John's having trouble forgiving It's a bit of a trivial example, isn't it? But our passage tonight takes us right into the murky waters of disagreements and disputes between Christians. And to say that Christians might have disagreements is a bit like saying Melburnians might have been glad to have the grand final back in Melbourne, right? It's not only true, it's almost impossible to imagine uh, any possible world in which that's not the case. One of the phrases I heard uh, during this week in reference to the Queen's death was that grief is the price we pay for love. You might have heard that too. Perhaps we might also say disagreement is the price we pay for truth. Disagreement is the price we pay for truth. Disagreement is the inevitable cost of valuing the truth. And, And Christians have always sought the truth. We seek to live in accordance with what is true, even if sometimes we disagree about what exactly that is. Our passage this evening takes us right to the heart of an ancient dispute about what sort of foods Christians could eat. Could they eat meat with a clear conscience or should they be vegetarian? Could they drink wine? What about celebrating festivals and certain sacred days? Was it okay for us to take Friday off for the grand final? Celebrating certain sacred days, right? To help us understand this dispute, we need to uh, just keep in mind the context of this letter. Uh, Paul's writing to Christians in Rome. Some of them are Jewish by background. So they're accustomed to keeping the Jewish food laws quite strict about particularly what kinds of meat you can eat. The ceremonies laid down in the law of Moses in the Old Testament. But there's also some Christians in Rome who are from a Gentile or non-Jewish background. They're not used to following these rules. And so it seems that their different culinary habits uh, have brought them into conflict. At one level it's about what food we can eat. At a deeper level it's about whether Christians need to follow the Old Testament laws. But even more profoundly, the heart of the matter 
is about how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly when we disagree. And that's what we're going to focus on today. Our Old Testament food laws are a little bit like medieval history to us, I think. They're kind of strange and they seem a bit irrelevant. But disagreeing with other Christians, hmm, I think we know all about that one. Uh, I should say, though, as we get into this, uh, I will be talking about disagreements among Christians, but I am always thankful uh, for the love and the unity that I've experienced here at St Jude's in Parkville uh, and that I see amongst our congregation both in the evening and the morning. I don't actually think we're a church that is given to quarrelling, where quarrelling is common. I don't think that's us. Uh, That's not where this sermon is coming from tonight. But we might have disagreements in the future. Or maybe you have friends who are wrestling with disagreements in their church who you could encourage with these words. Or maybe you like discussing issues with other Christians who have different points of view to you. For all of these reasons, the principles of how we disagree well from this passage are really important and valuable for us. Uh, So firstly, let's ask, what sort of issues are we talking about here? What sort of issues does Paul have in mind? Is it any possible issue that Christians might disagree about? Um, Elmi, we might just hold off on that. We'll, We'll get to that in a moment. Thanks. Uh, verse 1 says, we're thinking about what kind of issues are, are in mind here. Verse 1 says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. Right? So we're talking particularly about disputable matters. Other translations uh, call them opinions. These are issues on which the Bible is not totally clear. Issues that are not central to the gospel, not fundamental to our salvation. Uh, not kind of central to faithful Christian living. And we should recognise that some of us want to put almost everything in this category, right? We want to make almost any aspect of God's word optional or a matter of opinion or preference, non-essential. It helps us adjust the faith to better fit the culture. On the other hand, some of us do the opposite. We leave no room for conscience or cultural differences because we, we see that everything is determined and it's clear. And so there's almost no disputable matters if that's our approach. But clearly, according to verse 1, some matters are disputable. Not, not everything, right? Because back in chapter 13, Paul said a very clear no to certain things, to, to deeds of darkness. He said no to drunkenness and sexual immorality and jealousy, amongst others. Some matters are indisputable. And, and we're right to, to reject them uh, It's because they're sinful. And, and we're right to reject the teaching that would encourage them. But other matters are not so clear in the Scriptures. So the big question, what might those matters be? What are those disputable matters for us today? A good way to diagnose them, I think, is to ask, where are Christians most tempted to judge each other and treat each other with contempt. Uh, I suspect one of these areas is our politics. I know Christians who might not say it outright, but probably believe something like this. If you vote for the Greens, you couldn't possibly be a genuine Christian. From a couple of smiles, perhaps you know someone like that too. Only conservatives value the family and our Christian heritage. 
And if this is you, I suspect you don't have much time for Brook Prentice and Common Grace. On the other hand, I know other Christians who might say that if you vote liberal, you can't possibly be a true Christian. Only progressives are compassionate and care about the poor and the marginalised. And again, if this is you, I suspect you get angry every time you hear from Martin Isles in the Australian Christian Lobby. Because the issue is once we elevate our politics to this heightened level, as though who we vote for could undermine the work that Christ has done in us, what he's done for us on the cross, it's very easy, especially in the impersonal land of social media, to judge others, to demean and despise others, to treat them with contempt. It just feels right because they're so wrong. Think back a year or so to some of the debates around mask mandates, all the criticism and judgment flying around. Those who couldn't accept mask mandates were quick to condemn those who did accept the mandates at church. We had bowed the knee to Caesar, not to God. And those of us who were willing to accept the mandates, and and I was one, were dismissive and contemptuous of those who clearly had no love for their neighbours and no respect for the health of others. It's the temptation, isn't it? We either condemn or we dismiss and treat with contempt. Those of us perhaps of a more conservative disposition who are determined to pursue the holiness of God and do what is right, we're likely to judge and condemn those who are perhaps more liberal in their attitude because we think they're they're sinning flagrantly. We'll condemn common grace for compromising the gospel. And those of us who are more liberal by attitude, who embrace our freedom in Christ, we're likely to be dismissive of those who are too legalistic. We treat the ACL with contempt and don't respect them or engage with them. So how do we get past this natural tendency, either to judge others or to dismiss them and treat them with contempt? How do we break down the hostility in our own hearts? the hostility that can so easily harden into defensive lines between factions. Well, as always, it's the gospel that changes human hearts. It's the gospel that changes hearts. Romans 1 to 11 outlines this gospel of God's grace and sovereignty. He, the true creator, right, the one God, and us who have turned away from him and given our hearts to other gods, things that are no gods at all, invested our lives in these idols. But God has held back his righteous judgment on us and instead sent his son who died in our place, experiencing the judgment of God so that all who trust him are brought to peace with God and can live for God, not for idols, by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is is the gospel. It's what God has done for us. And so now, as God's redeemed people, we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to him and to love one another deeply from the heart, for love fulfills the law. Our new identity as worshippers of God changes every area of our lives and especially it changes how we treat those we disagree with. And Paul highlights four implications of this gospel 
to change our hearts. Four different implications of that gospel. Uh, Firstly, in verse 1, the Bible says, except the one whose faith is weak. And the reason given down in verse 3 is because God has accepted them. If God has accepted my brother or sister, who am I to reject them? I should just add here, when I talk about someone who's weak in faith, it's not calling people who are struggling with doubts weak in faith. That's not quite what we're talking about. It's more, in this context, struggling to trust that Christ has done everything we need for our salvation. The weak in this passage add extra rules and regulations. They don't trust that Christ has done what is required for us. But Paul says, accept them because God has accepted them. And actually, accept is a pretty wimpy word for what God has done for us, isn't it? God has welcomed us. God has embraced us. So much more than just accepting us. And so we are to welcome and embrace others. Even if we think their faith is weak, even if we think they're wrong and they haven't truly embraced the freedom found in Christ, we are to build relationships with them. We are to welcome and embrace them. If Christ has given his life for our sisters and brothers, if Christ has poured his spirit into their hearts, if they have a place in the Father's family, who are we to judge or despise them? And outrageously, even though Paul thinks that these weak brothers and sisters are wrong, he says they will stand because God is able to make them stand. Such is God's grace. Even though they've got the wrong end of the stick, they're obeying extra restrictions not required of Christians, Paul says God can make them stand. And from the from the opposite perspective, from the perspective of the so-called weak believer, even though the strong are flouting God's law, right, breaking God's commandments from their perspective and disobeying him, Paul says they will stand because God is able to make them stand. We all stand by the grace of God. This is the second implication of the Gospel. It's actually the radical result of being justified by faith, not by works. We don't stand before God based on how obedient we are. We don't stand before God based on how accurate our doctrine is. We stand before God based on Christ's righteousness alone, what he has done for us, his perfect obedience, received as a gift. God has made us stand in Christ. Who are we to condemn others? Uh, Thirdly then, because Christ has redeemed us, we now live for him. We have one Lord. It's our duty to please him above all others. Verse 6 says, Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. You can quote that one to John for me. right? I eat my tuna to the Lord. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. There's one for John. Verse 7, For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. 
We belong to the Lord. We've been bought by Christ, purchased uh, from the slavery of idolatry, right? redeemed. And now we worship God with all our heart in everything we do. He is the one that we uh, revere in our hearts. He's the one we live to please, not ourselves, not other people. So whether we eat meat or we're vegans, we give thanks to God for our food and we eat to the glory of God. Whether we vote for the Greens or the Liberals or anyone else, we pray with hope for our leaders, we give thanks for our civil rights and we vote to the glory of God. Whatever we do, we do it for the Lord. We do it for the Lord because in verse 9, for this very reason Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. It's a curious verse, this one, I think. If you were to ask me why did Christ die and rise, what would you say? I think I would say my first response would be, well, Christ died and rose to save us, to be the the saviour of both the dead and the living. But that may be true, but Paul points out also, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. He died and rose to receive lordship over all creation. I was watching the Queen's funeral earlier this week uh, and at one point the commentator pointed out the orb that was sitting on her coffin as it was carried all through the streets, miles and miles, through the streets of London. Uh, You can see it in the picture here. It's got a little cross on top and the commentator said, and you can see the orb there with the cross on top symbolising Christianity over the whole world. And... Uh, as he said that, I turned to Arlen and I said, no, that's not right. Christ is Lord over the whole world, not Christianity. Christianity does not preach ourselves as lords. It doesn't even preach our religion as, lords, as Lord over the whole world, not even the Queen. We preach Christ as Lord and Christ alone. He died and rose that he might win our allegiance. And now he rightly rules over all creation, the living and the dead. God has given him the name that is above every other name. So I would respectfully disagree with that commentator. I think the cross on the orb actually symbolises that even though the Queen uh, holds earthly power, she's reminded that Christ is Lord over the whole world. And because he alone is Lord, so too Christ alone has the right to judge. Uh, This is the fourth implication of the Gospel. If he is the Lord, we are not. And if he is the Lord, then he gets to judge, not us. Uh, This can sound a bit judgmental, right? Surely believing that God will judge uh, makes us judgmental too. But actually, I think it's the opposite. It ought to make us less judgmental because we don't need to take judgment into our own hands. If we're worried that justice isn't being done, 
we can actually entrust our cause to a higher authority, to God who is perfectly just, rather than trying to pay back evildoers ourselves with human justice that will never quite get it right. We don't have to uh, somehow ensure ultimate justice ourselves. And likewise, it should humble us because we're reminded in verse 12 that we will all give an account of ourselves to God too. And this includes for how we treat our brothers and sisters, our judgmental or our contemptuous attitudes. We're all accountable to God. So for all these four reasons, if we believe the gospel and its implications, let us stop passing judgment on one another, Paul says. Because God has welcomed each of us, God can make us stand by his grace. We all have one Lord and because Christ alone is judgeable, not us. Instead, verse 13 says, instead of being judgmental, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Here is a totally new way to approach these disputable matters. Right? We like to ask who's right and who's wrong in the disagreement. We work out the rights and wrongs, the truth of the matter, and once we've worked that out, we know then who has to apologise and change and who can just keep going doing what we want. And because we approach it that way, it easily becomes a way to justify ourselves because, of course, we think that we're right and so we can judge others because they're probably wrong. But Paul says, no, that's the wrong approach. There's actually something more important than being right, he says. And that's love. When you're debating or arguing a point, it's good to be right, but it's not ultimate. Even more important is to be loving. Uh, I should just be clear here. Paul is not saying in this passage that he just thinks both sides are right or that uh, everything's equally true or something like that. No, truth is important, There is truth to be had. Verse 14, he says quite clearly that he thinks the strong are right. All food is clean. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. He thinks that the strong are right. All food is clean. We have the right to eat meat. But, but there's something more important than our rights. That's loving your brother or sister. See verse 15. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Don't ask if your sister or brother is wrong. Ask what is best for them. How can I build them up in Christ? How can I make sure I don't compromise their faith or damage their conscience? and lead them into doing something that they think is wrong. Because here's the surprising thing. If in the area of food, at least, you think something is unclean, then in verse 14, for you it is. Because you can't eat it out of trust in God. How can you give thanks to God for something that you think is sinful? So we mustn't lead our fellow Christians into doing things that they sincerely believe are wrong. Instead, we can study God's word together, 
we can discuss and try to come to a common mind on it. If we can't find unity, it's actually better that neither of us engage in it rather than forcing someone to go against their conscience. Because as verse 17 says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the risk with these disputable matters, whether it's eating tuna, debating politics, arguing over cultural issues, it's not so much that we'll get them wrong. I mean, we want to get them right, but the the bigger problem is not so much that we'll get them wrong. The risk is that they'll become the main game, right? That we will think that our view is the only legitimate view for Christians to hold. We'll elevate them from a disputable matter to to an essential matter, to an essential Christian belief and exclude those who don't agree. Christians will continue to have disagreements, right? Until Christ returns, we'll continue to have disagreements. Because we value the truth, and with our limited minds, we're always going to have disagreements about it. But how we disagree makes all the difference. Paul calls us back to the Gospel, our shared identity in Christ, Will we love our sisters and brothers? Because God is not building a political or cultural empire, but a kingdom of righteousness, peace and joy in the Spirit. If a disputable matter makes you anxious or defensive and you want to respond, what about when God's kingdom of righteousness and joy is threatened by conflict? Shouldn't we be even more quick to to work for peace and give no basis for criticism of what God is doing? God asks us to lay down our individual preferences and rights for the sake of our brothers and sisters, for the sake of what he is doing in them and in us. Can you imagine what the church in Australia would be like if we all did this? If we thought first of the welfare of our brothers and sisters, not what are my rights, but how can I love others? What sort of witness might we have to the world? Not what are my rights, but how can I love others? Isn't this what Christ has done for us? Laid down his rights, even given up his life for us. He asks us to love our sisters and brothers. He loved us when we were his enemies. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your generosity and kindness to us in the Gospel. Thank you for accepting us and welcoming us, enabling us to stand by your grace. Help us to live as your people, in love to our sisters and brothers. When we disagree, help us to do so in ways that are filled with love that seek first your kingdom of righteousness, joy and peace. And would you grow us 
in the unity and love that is your will for us. Amen.